Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Joel Marcus. Joel is the executive chairman and founder of Alexandria Real Estate Equities. If you have spent five minutes in the biotech industry, you've been in one of his buildings. Alexandria is one of just a couple of the big real estate investment trusts, REITs, that cater to the life sciences industry. ARE has major properties in Cambridge, Massachusetts, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, San Diego, and many more biotech hubs. Buying, spiffing up, and flipping real estate by itself doesn't strike me as very interesting. But that's not what ARE does. ARE takes a very expansive view of its role in the biotech world. For sure, it starts with a canny sense of where to buy land and what to do with the property. But ARE also invests with a venture capital arm. It convenes executives and investors as a trusted third party. It even has ongoing dialogues with the FDA about things that it can do to help facilitate more innovation. It's quite interesting to hear Marcus talk about the company's strategy on investing in biotech clusters and how it has expanded over time into this wider view of how to stir more innovation for human health. Now, before we start this episode, a couple of quick things. Do you enjoy this podcast? Your organization can support it via a sponsorship. There aren't many places online where you can see an audience of 4,000 biotech leaders tuning in every other week for a thoughtful, in-depth conversation about issues of the day. Are you interested in getting your name out in front of this influential and engaged group of listeners? Let's talk. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. The other thing you can do is invest in quality journalism by purchasing a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. That gets you two to three articles a week. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a license to share within your organization. When you do that, you'll be able to read my writing, plus in-depth reports from savvy contributing writers like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Joel Marcus on the long run. Welcome, Joel Marcus. Thanks for joining me today on the long run. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Luke. So, Joel, I have to say, the day of, re- of our recording today, I'm reading a story about Alexandria in the news in my hometown of Seattle. You just purchased this big mega block, they're calling it, on Mercer Street, $143 million deal to build on two and a half acres or so of, of prime property, uh, South Lake Union. You're going to put in more biotech tenants there uh, over the years to come. So, uh you're a busy guy. Uh, this is one of many deals I'm sure that you're, you've been uh, paying attention to in, in recent days and weeks. Well, and as you know, we uh, also signed a uh, full building lease for our East Lake on the lake property with Adaptive, which has just gone public and had a really outstanding uh, 
initial public offering uh, performance. So we're very pleased. We've really spent a lot of time in uh, Seattle dating back, as you know, to 1996. So it's one of our uh, most important and certainly one of my favorite markets. Well, there's a lot to talk about here, Joel, because, you know, I mean, I've been around all of your properties, it feels like, uh, Boston, San Francisco, San Diego, New York. Uh, you, you seem to be everywhere in biotech uh, with a lot of shared interests in what's new and innovative coming out of basic science and, and entering the world of startup land, venture capital. Uh, you, you guys like literally get in there on the ground floor. So I, I'm eager to hear you talk about your thought process and how you got there. Uh, but for starters, you know what, listening to this show, I like to ask a little bit about the person and their journey to uh, where you got in, uh, in biotech. So tell me, uh, where does your story begin? Where were you born and raised, Joel? I uh, grew up in Denver, Colorado and came out here uh, to go to UCLA. Uh, did both undergraduate and graduate there. Um, got a CPA degree and also a law degree and spent the first part of my career uh, as a lawyer, and then really the um, kind of the serendipitous occurrence which really changed my life in a professional way was back in uh, 1983 when the biotech industry was really in its infancy. I was a corporate securities lawyer, and uh, I got a call from Morgan Stanley, and they said, could you be out tomorrow to Thousand Oaks, we're going to meet with, uh, we're representing a foreign party, and we're going to meet with a company called uh, Applied Molecular Genetics, better known as Amgen. And so this is 1983, actually it was November of 83, Amgen's market cap was $160 million. People probably didn't even know who that was or how to pronounce it at the time. Let, let's just back up for a second. You said born and raised in Denver. Um, what, what did your uh, parents do for a living? Uh, my dad was really, he. Uh, neither parents went to uh, college. So my dad uh, was in retail and uh, ultimately ended up doing uh, some government work. Um, and my mom was primarily a homemaker. So it was pretty pretty average story for you know kid from Denver. Any siblings? Uh, two, yep. Now, are you the oldest, youngest? Uh, the best, the middle. <laughs> middle child. Okay. Yeah. And, and so what, what, kinds of, uh, what kind of student were you? What things were you interested in? Yeah, I was pretty typical, nothing spectacular. I, you know, I, I like to study, so I was pretty studious. I also was um, not greatly athletic, but somewhat, that, somewhat athletic. I was a backup quarterback on our high school team that actually went to – and one state championship. Um, and uh, I uh, just, you know, I was pretty normal, nothing, nothing unusual. And so you go to UCLA. Yep. Were you thinking of becoming a lawyer from early on or how did that come about? No, um, I actually was thinking of being a uh, fighter pilot uh, in my early days, and I did join the Air Force, and I ended up as a medic, of all things. And uh, um, during the Tet Offensive, way, way back in uh, uh, 1968, uh, I, was, uh, a, um, I, I was active, on active duty, actually, up near San Francisco at a place um, called Travis Air Force Base. And... Um, I was assigned to a what's called a casualty staging unit uh, in the Air Force, and 
we flew wounded soldiers from uh, the Tet Offensive in v- Vietnam through Japan and the Philippines to um, uh, to Travis Air Force Base. And the key there was treat them. They're about a, one to three days off the battlefield with wounds and then transship them to a Veterans Administration hospital near where they live or where they're based. So I spent part of my time in college uh, doing that. And I was uh, an accounting uh, you know, major or minor, whatever it was, that was my focus. And then my plan was to get a CPA and then go to law school. And I knew whatever I would do, those would be two kind of core skills that would be um, useful in hopefully anything that I did. But again, I was, I never, you know, I was just pretty average. Now, this is active duty military, but your service was stateside. Did you, was there a chance that you might go to Vietnam? Uh, I actually wanted to, but didn't. <laughs> I mean, I would have. I would not have uh, turned it down, but I was assigned to this unit and that's what we did. So that's what I did. Okay. Okay. Uh, we should tell the listeners that, yeah, you're uh, you're about 71 too. So you're born in the late 40s and really kind of that prime draft age for when that was going on. Yeah. So I, but I signed up, I, I joined the Air Force willingly and this is something I wanted to do. And I served in the, uh, the res- I was active two years and served in the reserves for four years. So. Okay. Okay, so CPA, law, you're thinking, I'm going to be a businessman? Uh, Or a professional lawyer. That seemed fine to me. Um, And it was the call to go out to Amgen that really pivoted me to a a career focused in the biotech industry. Before that, I did a lot of um, initial public offerings, venture capital work, all kinds of capital markets and corporate securities, but didn't specialize in um, the biotech industry, that just kind of was super serendipitous. And as you know, well, Amgen and Genentech and, uh, uh, you know, some of the early Cambridge companies really were emerging in the late 70s and the early 80s. So the industry really was in a total infancy. Was that something that you were aware of and starting to, to gravitate to? Or was it more just this serendipitous thing that, uh, you know, some, some job here with Amgen came ac- across the transom and, and and you dove in? Yeah, that's exactly right. I had never, uh, you know, I may have heard of biotech, but I didn't ever pay any attention to it. And, uh, you know, I, I actually was doing, weirdly enough, a secondary offering for Getty Oil Company, which doesn't exist anymore. And so as a corporate securities lawyer, when this uh, call came in for Thousand Oaks, I mean, I kind of knew where it was, but I'd never been up there. And when somebody said Amgen, I'm like, what the heck is that? And in those days, you didn't have Google. So it was a little hard to figure out what the heck is this company about? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, this was the the original This was the original collaboration that they sought to do with uh, uh, Kieran Brewery, right? Uh, in Japan. Correct. So when I came in, uh, I was introduced to the Kieran Brewery people. Um, I was to represent them and, uh, Amgen was represented, uh, by Cooley, um, who actually we use now as one of our mainline lawyers, thanks to that transaction. And, uh, from the day we met in the end of, it was around Thanksgiving of 1983, and this is kind of legendary because it was the first real strategic partnership in the biotech industry. And it's one that lasted for a long, long time and a very great one. And the products that came out of there were 
erythropoietin became the leading recombinant uh, product that ever, you know, up to Humera's time that it was ever produced. So from the date that we shook hands around Thanksgiving of 83 to the date we signed a fairly sophisticated joint venture, which was May 13th, 1984, you think about six months from shaking hands with a Japanese company um, and getting a very sophisticated joint venture done pretty hard. So that, that was pretty record time. That would have been an American company or European. You would have kind of thought, okay, six months makes sense, but, or, you know, less than six months of real work because you had Christmas and Thanksgiving, but, um, uh, there it was well, a Japanese company. The technical aspects of this were daunting at the time, too. I mean, you're going to manufacture these recombinant proteins. I mean, <laughs> people had to figure this out. Yeah. Well, Fuqua Lin had just cloned and expressed the gene for uh, erythropoietin. Um, you know, you were going to need to use uh, mammalian cell uh, production. So it was a very, number one, nobody knew if the product was going to work. And number two, if it did work. Uh, the, the manufacturing of it was pretty daunting. And then how you divide up the world is also pretty daunting. So it was a complicated deal. And once um, I was into it, I knew that's what I want to do, you know, for the focus of my life. I, I didn't at that point, didn't ever think about real estate, although my dad was, you know, involved in real estate. But uh, he, he during part of his years, he actually was a home builder. Um, but uh so I had some real estate background in the family, but you know, at that point, I was only focused on biotech as a lawyer. So you got the the bug for biotech with that uh, deal, and would you have been across the table from uh, legendary George Rathman, bear of a man, founding CEO of Amgen? Indeed, George was there, Gordon Binder was there, Bob Weist was there, Dan Vapnik, who ran R and D. Uh, so it was a pretty legendary group of people. Kirby Alton, a lot of people who were you know, there in the original days. Um, and they didn't even know what they had. They had shopped EPO around to a lot of people and no one wanted to write them a check. And finally, Kieran said, okay, we'll put up uh, $12 million. You put up four of it and we'll value the EPO technology at $8 million. And it turned out to be a $24 million uh, JV. Today, that would be looked at as a rounding arrow in BioBucks uh, terms, right? <laughs> And the rest, they say, is history. Epo, the billions and billions of sales. Right. And, and I'll tell you one weird thing. I have an older brother who is a judge. It, Epo ended up saving his life um, because he had a, a situation where he needed it. And uh, it was the medicine that, uh, that worked to save his life. So it's really weird how that worked out personally, too. Well, you know, EPO uh, is a great product. I mean, you think about the world before and after, and it made a big difference. Um, it didn't just make a lot of money for Amgen, although it did that too. Um, okay. Well, what do you think it was about um, biotech that captivated your interest? Well, one, it was uh, it involved cross-border um, uh, relationships, which I've always found pretty interesting. Um, the first place I ever went outside of the United States um, on a trip was uh, the old Soviet Union, not because I was, you know, in sympathy with them in any way, but I had taken Russian actually in college and wanted to practice. So I did something pretty rare, which is, you know, during the days of Brezhnev, you know, heavy duty Cold War, go over there. And, you know, that was kind of pretty unusual for a U.S. person to do that. 
Uh, so I always like kind of international cross-border things and also representing the Japanese. I kind of fell in love with the people and the culture and ended up representing over time, over my career, uh, when I was at Brobeck, almost every single Japanese pharma company on inbound investment in U.S. Uh, technologies and things. Um, so I ended up actually, this catapulted me to actually a pretty significant practice doing that, which I never even imagined. So kind of a weird serendipitous thing. Okay. Okay. Now, how long did you continue to um, scratch your biotech itch, so to speak, as a lawyer? Yeah. So the other thing that grabbed me, going back to your question just a moment ago, Luke, is um, much like the millennial generation today, I found that biotech was very mission-driven and really developed a passion, whereas if I was doing a secondary offering for uh, an oil company, well, you know, it was an interesting uh, exercise in capital markets, but, you know, I wasn't really passionate about oil, um, although we need it, right? Um, but biotech just grabbed me, and I think the sophistication of melding uh, business, science, law, and financial, uh, you know, capabilities really kind of piqued my interest. So I practiced uh, and focused on biotech the next decade, so from 83 to 93. And then in 93, I was doing a public offering of a company um, in the um, lupus space, which ultimately didn't go public, but um, uh, I... The, the chairman and the vice chairman wanted to see me after this uh, pitch meeting. And I said, okay, fine. It turned out to be Joe Jacobs, the founder of Jacobs Engineering and Jerry Sadarsky, who was the vice chairman of Jacobs. And they said, you know, you've done a really good job in working with the company here. And we'd like to have you work with us. We've got this idea that, you know, Jacobs is a service company and they have, they do architecture and design and so forth of lab buildings and manufacturing and all kinds of stuff in the farm and biotech industry and well beyond. But they said, we'd like to own some real estate and we're thinking about starting a company. Would you help us? So that was the introduction. It wasn't my idea. It was their idea. Um, and over the next nine months, I helped them put together a business plan as a lawyer, not I didn't you know, join them and a financial model. And so that was the first beginnings of, uh, of the seed of Alexandria. Okay. So by this point, you, you've been a practicing attorney for a number of years. You've done uh, corporate securities and transactions. Uh, I'm guessing this pays pretty well. You're doing all right. Um, you, you know, you're in your early 40s. Did, were you a partner at the firm? Yeah, I was a partner at Brobeck. This is about a decade before they collapsed. So they were in, you know, very, very good shape and had a had a great I did a lot of work for Kleiner Perkins, for Robertson Stevens. So we had a great client roster, including, you know, my own clients and many of the firm. Uh, so it was a really great practice. I was happy. You know, I had three young kids. Um, and so life was pretty good, although I worked hard. I ended up going to Japan for that 10 years, every month for 10 years. So I did it about 120 times, uh, you know, not only Kieran, but a lot of other assignments. So, you know, it was, it was hard work. Okay. Uh, so you got this exposure to a project in your capacity as a lawyer, but you're not really thinking at this point, uh, I'm going to like, uh, throw caution to the wind and, you know, start a company. Never, never even entered my mind. 
So how did this thing like turn into your all-consuming, you know, new entrepreneurial passion? So they, at the end of the nine months, when we had the business plan and the financial model, uh, they said, well, we're in our 70s, so we can, you know, help guide it and we can help raise money, but we can't run it. And you're young. I was 47, so they thought that was young, but it actually wasn't so young, right? <laughs> and they said, would you come in and do it? And I'm like, no. Uh, so they went about their way and then... um they asked me over the next couple of months, time and time again, and I just said, no, I really have no interest. And then they had a, a venture capitalist friend of theirs and somebody I had worked pretty closely with, um, a gentleman named Jay Raskin, who was a founder of, I think it was called Southern California Ventures, uh, SCV. He passed away a number of years ago. And he came to me one day, sat with me and he said, um, you know, Jerry and Joe want you to do this. I know you have a great life. You got great clients and all this stuff. But, you know, if you ever do something, if you don't do it now, you'll never do it. So why don't you take a chance? And so uh, I said, well, I don't really think so. So then he worked on me over the next couple of months. And finally, I said, OK, just stop annoying me. I'll do it. So but but I assumed that it wouldn't work out. And so my backup plan, I had talked to some friends um, uh, in the uh, investment banking realm. And so I thought, okay, if this just goes south, I'm going to, because I can't go back and be a lawyer because you can't get your clients back once you give them away. Um, so I was going to go into investment banking if this was a fa failed. So that was my backup. But I, you know, I left this job. We, uh, we formed the company January of 1994. And our goal was to break even. We raised $19 million of Series A and our goal was we would get um, compensation after once we broke even 18 months. So it was a big shift, right, from going from a partnership to a, a startup where you're not getting paid. And 19 million might sound like a lot, I guess, in 1994. But uh, for a real estate company, I mean, you, this is a capital intensive business. I mean, you'll have to go out and borrow money, of course. Like today, um, or like the I just mentioned with the 24 million for Amgen, Kieran. 19 million was like a joke. I mean, today in real estate, you know, that's like patio furniture. Um, and so, yeah, but we were lucky. We started and we bought uh, uh, four buildings to start and we got to break even. So we got our uh, got our employment agreements and um, started drawing some salary. And then our next goal was to bridge the company to an IPO because my view of the world was if we don't get public and can't raise access to public funds, both debt and equity, we'll never be able to grow this company quickly and the cost of private capital just be too high. So that Remind was- Remind me what your timeline was to get to break even, that, that you were giving yourself a 18 no, like 12 or 18 month runway? Yeah, mid-1995. Okay. And you got there. We did. Um, and, you know, so are you learning the ropes of real estate, like on the job? Or, or did you feel like you had a good, a good grasp for the, the, like the fundamentals as well as the, the nuances? Yeah, I mean, I had, when I was a CPA, I had uh, actually worked in the REIT sector. So I was pretty sophisticated when it came to uh, real estate and REITs. I had never been an operator, but I had been an advisor uh, and an analyst. So I kind of knew, you know, I had good, pretty good skills. Okay. So what was it about, like, so this is marrying biotech and real estate. First time uh, it had ever been done. From, 
Right, right. So was there like was there a grand long-term vision there from the start that, you know, this is a great industry, it's bound to grow and it's going to need this kind of um sophisticated lab services and I should go in and fill that void? Or or, or is that not or, or did that kind of come later? Well, that was the grand vision, but the reality was we didn't know. We had no idea if, um, you know, there was a real deep market. Um, we didn't know if this industry would actually, you know, because it's dependent upon clinical trials and discoveries. We didn't know how deep the industry could get. So if you think about 1994, 1995 was still early days. We had a kind of a hope and a dream, but the reality is we just didn't know. Yeah, yeah. 1994, I think that was when I got my first email account. <laughs> first began using the World Wide Web. <laughs> A lot's changed. Um, so how did your strategy evolve in those er- early years? So mid-90s, uh, Genome Project would have been in the news. Um, more and more interest, more federal funding going to biotech, kind of a a growing awareness uh, in the business world that, yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. It's more than just Amgen, Genentech, and Biogen. Yeah. So um, once we got to break even mid-95, the goal was we had a bridge to an IPO to really grow the company. We we had to have a public um, really platform to make, to access cost of um, cost of capital that made sense. So we were fortunate. We did a $27.5 million equity uh, private raise as our B round, and we were able to get a, a revolving credit line for $75 million. Um, and in the early days, our first uh, loan was $2 million, where we had to guarantee it personally uh, because nobody believed the company was worth anything. So kind of crazy. Um, and then we were able to use those funds to get critical mass, we ended up with 15 properties. We had 12 employees and we got public in May of 1997, kind of miraculously. But uh, most people said uh, in the public markets, well, this is a weird niche. The buildings are special. Nobody's going to, you know, when you put in a lab, you're going to have to tear it out to lease it to an accounting firm who's going to come in there afterwards. And so we don't put much faith in the, you know, in the, in the sector or in, you know, this business, a lot of people wrote that about us, but, you know, lo and behold, we were able to use our, we raised 155 million at the public offering. We invested it pretty rapidly and actually our stock went up 50% in the first year. So we went from 20 to 30, which nobody believed. Um, So we knew something was going on. There was a sentiment out there and we, accumulated single assets in the early years in our clusters. We, we felt that Michael Porter's cluster theory, if we stuck to what we thought were the science uh, clusters, East Coast and West Coast, those would be the places we would best, um, you know, best invest. And it wasn't until 2004, five and six that we pivoted from single assets to our uh, campus strategy in Mission Bay, New York City, and uh, Cambridge. And that was probably the biggest 
pivot of the in the company's history. That that movement really catapulted us into a position to be where we are today. Had we not done that, we wouldn't be anywhere near the you know size. I remember also when we went public, somebody interviewed me and they said, well, what's your goal over the next five or so years? And I said, wow, if we could be a, a billion dollar REIT, that would be huge. And, you know, here we are and we're total enterprise value today is almost, you know, approaching 25 billion. So kind of crazy. Never imagined that. You know, at the time of that IPO, uh, a lot of the original companies had just moved into kind of older industrial space, you know, warehouses or, you know, used car lots or something where like they tear out a bunch of space and put in, you know, some HVAC up above and with a high ceiling so that it works, right? Uh, garage type stuff. <laughs> and, and you, did you think of like higher amenities from the start, like making it just, uh, you know, easier for entrepreneurs to, to get a proper space? Not at all. That really evolved when we pivoted to the campus. Once we pivoted to the campus and I, I led the New York effort, um, where we partnered with the uh, Bloomberg administration and the city of New York, um, on our east, uh, uh, on our east side campus, uh, near the, um, uh, near NYU and, um, uh, right above the East River. And there we knew it was kind of a flag lot, about a four acre campus, and we could build well north of a million square feet over time. And we knew we would have to bring amenities there. We'd have to bring quality food. We'd have to bring kind of fitness. We'd have to bring some other things to really get people excited about coming to that location because it wasn't an obvious, it was beautiful. The views were spectacular, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't mainstream in that day. So that really made a big difference. And when we launched Mission Bay, we felt the same way. And ultimately in Cambridge, same thing. So that pivot from single asset to the campus kind of the cluster campus strategy was when the amenities really emerged as being, you know, signature parts of our campus. Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support in two meaningful ways. One, you can sponsor the long run and reach 4,000 biotech leaders in this immersive listening experience every other week. Another simple alternative is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe. And if your organization has more than one reader, you need a sharing license. You can get a discount with one of those. Email me at Luke at TimmermanReport.com. You mentioned Michael Porter and cluster theory, and this is a very important point uh, from the 90s. Because uh, he, he theorized that innovation would um, flourish in these so-called clusters, uh, places where you have a whole lot of people who kind of contribute to the, the ecosystem, to use that word, uh, various ways. So it's entrepreneurs, it's venture capitalists, it's service providers, um, a whole village that it takes to make the whole thing go round. And it was important that they be close together geographically. And, you know, I think that this, I don't know, I don't remember the debates uh, at the time, but, you know, this was around the same time the internet was uh, coming up. And a lot of people theorized that, 
you know, you could do your business anywhere you wanted to. You could be a, a financial manager, you know, in North Dakota if you want. Don't need to be in New York City. Uh, so, but Porter was very much, uh, you know, uh, on the other side of that one. And, and you, um, you bought in to this, this concept of the cluster. Why, why was that important to you? So I think, and you articulated probably as well as anybody has, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, reading a lot. And, uh, when I read, when I read Porter's kind of thesis, uh, it may have been like 1998. I went, okay, we got to think about this and how it may apply to us. Um, but I think what's very unusual is biotech is, you, you know, very specially suited to uh, the cluster concept, whereas actually technology companies aren't. Google doesn't really want to be right next to Facebook or Facebook doesn't want to be right next to uh, Amazon. Um, but in biotech, there has been almost from the beginning this um, this community uh, where people move from job to job, oftentimes where execs move job to job, where companies partner together, where they um, really use the same uh, base. Like in Cambridge, they use you know MIT as one of the base institutions to draw technology from. So there are much more compatible kind of industry than other industries. And I think that, you know, really struck me back in 1984 when we did the deal with uh, Kieran and Amgen. And then there were a whole lot of other deals that came after that. This industry is just particularly collaborative uh, and innovative, of course, compared to a lot of industries. And that's why it was uniquely suited for this cluster concept. And that proximity is really important because it seems like the fact that you can walk 15 minutes or hop on the subway for 20 minutes to to you know kick around your basic science idea with someone who's an expert in chemical formulation or clinical trials uh, you you need to interact with that person and there can't be too much friction there like getting on a plane and you know waiting around half a day is like too much for the interactions to occur the way they need to occur yeah I think that that's one critical factor Luke the other one is, the industry, as you know well, has been seeded by uh, venture and um, venture capitalists really, and we see this really in, uh, in, a, in a pretty profound way in Cambridge, for example, um, where they want to be near their companies that they're either investing in or they're starting. I can't tell you how many conversations over the years where we've said to somebody, wow, go out to the suburbs, you can get, you know, 20% less, 40% less, even 50 or 60% less than the heart of Cambridge, um, you know, for their space. Now, these are not massive amounts of space, of course, as companies grow, but um, it didn't matter. They felt that they'd rather pay the premium to have them close to the um, technology, you know, developer like uh, or the where the technology came from from like an MIT or something like that and close to where the venture guys have their office that just has been and that has not changed even today we have those conversations with people and people are hesitant to go out to the burbs in many cases now some do but the vast majority do not especially in the therapeutic area you do have devices and sometimes services or diagnostics wandering out many times to the burbs, but hardcore therapeutics backed by venture people by and large don't want to do that. 
Now, so late 90s, kind of early 2000s, you're buying into this clustering theory, uh, but you're still operating with single properties uh, that you can buy up, I guess, sort of opportunistically, like when they come on the market, you make bids, that kind of thing. Right. And we started started in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s to become a developer and a redeveloper. So take existing buildings and redevelop them or buy land and build. But we always were in the heart of the cluster. We never, uh, well, in Cambridge is a good example. We started in Worcester and then moved into Cambridge over time uh, because we just didn't have the money. But uh, we tried to concentrate, you know, in the heart of uh, the best locations because we felt those are the ones that have the best chance to retain value over time. Now, how did this evolve into the bigger bet, like really doubling, tripling down around campuses, as you say, in, in the mid-2000s? This is sort of the, uh, the, the ultimate extension of cluster theory. Yeah. So in 2003, we spent, uh, I personally spent a huge amount of time up in the Bay Area trying to get um, a company called Catellus, which had kind of master planned with the city. Um, and UCSF, the Mission Bay area. And we kept telling them, well, we'll buy this lot or we'll do this or we'll do that. And they kept rejecting us. And we were like, boy, this really kind of is, is a bummer because they don't see the vision. They just said, well, if Merck comes here, we'll build them a, a building, but we don't see either ground leasing or selling or doing anything for little companies or even you know, mid-sized companies, we want big credit companies. And they just kind of stuck with that. So we couldn't get into Mission Bay because they controlled all the land, actually. It was a converted railroad company that actually had the land, um, which became Catellus. Then something miraculous happened. Um, They became a REIT and then pivoted to be an industrial REIT and said, wow, this... uh, this office kind of lab stuff that could be built at Mission Bay is not core. So why don't we sell it? So we ab- we were able off market without it ever going to market buy in four separate transactions, all of the virtually all the commercial space or land at Mission Bay. That was the big pivot. During 2003, this was going on. So we bought in 2004 and 2005. And in those same years, I was pretty deeply involved with um, working with uh, Mayor Bloomberg put out an RFP for the um, Eastside campus to try to get a developer to build and attract um, tenants to, uh, you know, uh, Manhattan. And so that went on at the exact same time. And then 2006, we had a huge opportunity. We found out to buy Technology Square right across from MIT Science Campus um, and also begin to assemble the Binney Street corridor. So literally in three years, 04, 05, 06, we launched three giant um, campus efforts. And we still were a relatively small REIT. We were not investment grade. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a bet the company um, situation because it could have gone south. Well, you're publicly traded and you've got access to the equity markets. But when you say not investment grade, how much borrowing capability? Yeah, I mean, we had limited. We could borrow, but it was bank loans and uh, you couldn't get long-term fixed rate debt. So our loans were variable and they were, 
you know, a couple of years. They weren't long term. So it was hard. It was not easy. And we were relatively small. Uh huh. Uh huh. But uh, I mean, your properties, your strategy appeared to be working. Something had to be giving you confidence that you could make this move, right? Well, we uh, sometimes you make bold moves and you kind of uh, feel like if we don't do it, we'll never be able to do it. And, uh, you know, New York only comes by once in a lifetime. Mission Bay comes by once in a lifetime. Technology Square comes by once in a lifetime. So, you know, we were we we were pretty bold. We convinced our board to uh, allow us to do it. And, uh, you know, we did it. And then wham, then Lehman collapsed. So that was, uh, you know, so we grew very rapidly, 04, 05, 06, and then into 07. And then we got, you know, slammed in the head with the world financial crisis. So that was a, that was a pretty interesting effort. And how did that affect your business? I can imagine, you know, lots of your tenants begin struggling. They begin, you know, laying off 20% of their workforce, kind of one after the other, uh, Maybe some of them backing out on long-term leases. Well, luckily, we had a couple things going for us. So number one, we had irreplaceable land and great locations. Um, so the first thing we did after uh, September 15th of May, uh, 20, um, 2008 is within 30 days, we cut our capital expenditures 50%, but didn't lay off any people. So we felt that if we keep our team, but cut our CapEx and cut our, you know, our, our spend, our capital expenditures, we could survive. And then analysts told us at the time, well, why don't you just sell Mission Bay or just give it away? And we thought that's the craziest notion we ever heard. But literally some of the lead analysts told us that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was in, uh, this is a funny aside, but I, I spent a year at MIT on a science journalism fellowship, 2005 to 2006. And, uh, you know, Genzyme and Biogen were there, but, you know, this was like far from obvious that it was going to become Kendall Square as we know it today. It just, it, it, it it's just com been completely transformed. And, and you guys definitely look prescient. In, in hindsight. Yeah. So what what really saved uh, the day on the tenant side was back in 1996, we started our uh, research and venture effort. And we were pretty tough with, uh, you know, our tenants. We wanted, um, uh, we, we did small tenants, we did medium tenants, and we did large tenants, but we still had a strong amount of credit in our portfolio which enabled us to get through the financial crisis in pretty great shape. We had just a handful of clients that ran into trouble, not, not very many and not very big spaces. So it was, uh, we had one situation, I'll give you an example, in a building up in uh, South San Francisco, a company, I won't use any names, but a company that kind of ran out of cash and um, had a tough time. So we engineered them to move out. We ripped up their lease which a lot of landlords wouldn't have. And then we were successful in bringing in literally at the same time in 2008, uh, hard to imagine, Genentech for all the space. So we actually made a great move. And did you take an equity piece in this company that moved out? No, no, we, we have never accepted equity for rent. We've never done that one time. 
Okay, okay. But you do, uh, you are a very active venture investor. Um, and how, how did that, how did that strategy like dovetail nicely with the whole real estate? Yeah, the reason we did that is in 1996, when we were still private, we felt we made our first investment. We felt that it was important to invest in the early stage, some early stage companies, not necessarily tenants. In fact, most of our investments are not in tenants. Um, so we could understand where the science was going, where the commercial side was going and position ourselves best based on that knowledge. And so we started doing some early stage venture investing. And then we put a boutique research group together to really analyze uh, our tenant applications to make sure we were underwriting tenants you know, carefully. So the two kind of dovetailed nicely together. This helped you uh, evaluate which tenants were good tenants that that had growth prospects. I mean, that sounds kind of hard to do in in such a risky science based industry. Yeah, I mean, a good example is in two thousand and three, we we did make a small investment in Al Nilum. We underwrote Al Nilum for their first space of about three thousand or four thousand feet in Cambridge in our science hotel there. And today, you know where El Nylum is. It's got a giant footprint and has done very, very well. So that's an example of where we took a, a bit of a bet. We know Phil Sharp very well. Um, and we felt like we wanted to be at the leading edge of our NAI technology. And we felt that this was a good way to do it. And we felt our underwriting uh, of the company itself that if they were to go out, that we wouldn't have, you know, huge exposure to them, but we felt pretty good about their prospects. So it's a kind of an early example of where we combine both those disciplines. Now, this has grown over the years, the venture investments, to the point where, um, I mean, you're not you're not arch venture partners. You're not making enormous bets on a few companies. You make a lot of bets, a lot of small bets across a lot of companies, right? It varies. Um, we have uh, quite a number of companies. We are our venture um, uh, our venture activities today on a mark to market basis are about a billion. Our cost base is about seven hundred and fifty million. So we're we're up nicely. Um, we have some you know bigger positions and some smaller positions, but we we tend to be on the small side. We're not going to put uh, 50 or 100 million or 200 million into a company. Uh, we, don't, uh, we, we, we don't make those kinds of bets. But to give you another example, our first technology tenant and investment was Google. We were an investor in their Series A for a dollar a share. We still actually own some of that stock today. And we did their first campus, which we still own and lease to them today. So we've, we've tried to make you know prudent bets on... Um, you know, interesting companies. Uh, we did, we're now delivering four buildings for Uber and we made a, you know, relatively early investment in, in Uber as well. Wow. I wasn't really aware that you had those kind of tech properties. Uh, what, what percentage of your uh, properties are biotech? Well, it's the vast majority, about 10% are, are pure tech. Um, and the reason we ended up with Uber is we didn't ever plan that, but they came to Mission Bay 
I was totally surprised and that said, we want you to do this, this, and this. And we went around to our clients. We talked to a bunch of big clients and smaller clients and said, we've got somebody who wants us to build these buildings. Do you want to lease them? And everybody said no. And so we built them for Uber. Okay. Okay. Now there's another aspect of what you've, that that's evolved here. You, you, you serve as something of a convener. <laughs> you, you have, um, I don't know, kind of like a neutral party in a way between the entrepreneurs and the VCs and the big pharma companies. I mean, they, uh, they all come through Alexandria properties and you know, you're, um, I don't know if Switzerland is the right, right word here, but uh, you, you know you've got an ability. You're connected to everybody and, and able to bring them together as a as a broker. How have you thought about how that feeds into uh, the bigger picture of what you're doing? Yeah, and I think part of that was really um, a feeling that somewhat came out of my experience with Amgen and Kieran. That and it ended up that I I was Kieran's lawyer during the joint venture. And then once the joint venture got put together, I became the uh, counsel for the joint venture representing both Amgen and Kieran. And that's pretty unusual. So I've always in life felt myself as a, as a good intermediary and one that could understand both sides' problems. And so that really became part of how we tried to think about things that, um, you know, we, we have tried to help people uh, introductions to capital, introductions to, um, you know, partners, uh, introductions to the regulatory agency. So we've tried to serve the industry in ways that, you know, are very non-selfish. We don't charge for anything. We don't want anything in return, but it really is ecosystem building. And so we've, we've spent a lot of our time over many years. You know, the company just celebrated its 25th anniversary, hard to imagine, and that's really kind of in our DNA. So this is a, I guess you file this one under the header of good karma. <laughs> you pay it forward, you help people out, be good to people, and and eventually things come back around to, to support the business. Yeah, and a real good example of that recently is we teamed up with Alphabet's subsidiary Verily, and we're building the first um, really full continuum of care uh, opioid addiction campus in Dayton, Ohio, the city that had at least two years ago had the highest per capita death rate of any city in America for opioid addiction. And it's very data driven. And that's a good example. That's not our core business, but we felt after learning that, you know, there's 70,000 Americans die a year, something like 115 a day, we felt that we had to act. And that was a way we felt we could contribute by doing creating a campus and creating a delivery of service that would go from detox, you know, detoxing somebody to sober living, family reunification, job training, and then job placement. No one's ever done anything like that. So that was an, another example. We, we actually drafted language because of our great relationship with the FDA and uh, that ecosystem, we were part of, we actually drafted part of the breakthrough therapy designation language back in 2013. So we've been very active in a number of uh, areas, both uh, not in a political sense, but in a uh, policy sense. 
Now, wait a second. You just said you have a good relationship with the FDA. Now, somebody listening to this coming cold might think, well, wait a minute. Why would a real estate company have a relationship with the FDA at all? Yeah, so we're pretty involved. We've teamed with them on um, a number of forum that uh, focus on, um, you know, early diagnostics, on um, policy. I mean, we, we've we known the commissioners personally pretty well. So we, we, we use our resources and make them available to them uh, to help them get outside input on things they're doing. And uh, that's just something we've done for many, many years. We do the same thing with the NIH as well. It's a very holistic view. Like I can imagine there are people in your line of work in the real estate business that just think, you know, look, my job is to build and maintain properties, sell them at a profit, make sure the tenants are paying their rent on time. (laughs) And that's kind of it. But what you describe is a much, much bigger, broader vision for a whole industry. Yeah, I think that what's distinguished us, as I said from the early part, is we want to be a mission-driven company. And most people in real estate or in all these industries are really financial players. Uh, you know, we, we buy it, we fix it, we sell it, so to speak. And um, we've always taken the position that um, for this industry, which is unique, um, we want to be way more than um, simply a provider of infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. And then when things happen, like Elm Island getting its first uh, SIRNA approved last year, you can look at that and say, huh, we had a small hand in that. Yep, we did. How do you uh, stay sharp? You you mentioned that you read a lot. Uh, obviously, you talk with lots of different people focused on different aspects of the industry. Um, when you get up in the morning, how, how do you, uh, you know, keep that shot, uh, that, saw sharpened well i'm in the gym at 6 a.m every day that's my uh that's kind of my first thing and then i'm in calls by seven o'clock for sure um but i think it really is um over time one that uh we spend a lot of time looking at um as much information and data as we can about all aspects of our our business and our clients business uh, you know, we have a worldwide network, which I think is really unparalleled. We spend a lot of time with, um, you know, our our clients and investors in this space, and we want to be good. Uh, we want to be good citizens as well, and so we pay attention to what's going on. You know, uh, like the opioid crisis, um, we spent about two years studying it, thinking about it, and then emerged the opportunity to partner with somebody to really do something special. So, uh, you know, most of us uh, are really dedicated to doing, hopefully doing way more um, in building this ecosystem than simply bricks and mortar. Now, I know that your stock has done really well over the years. I think it's beaten the S&P 500 in various ways you might look at it. But do, do your um, does your board or your shareholders do they ever raise an eyebrow at you like you know why are we doing all this stuff Joel? Uh, no, it's actually quite the opposite. I think the board has been fully on board, and I think you know when we announced, I was actually kind of surprised, and we went to the board specifically for approval on the uh, Dayton project because it wasn't within our you know our our business purview of you know laboratories etc. 
Um, and they were very, very supportive. Um, but when we announced it, I got emails and calls from a number of both analysts and institutional investors who said, uh, in fact, one wrote an article or a, a caption that said, um, you know, something like, the company's doing uh, good business, but it's doing good things in addition to that. And it was, I didn't get one single negative uh, input on that. And I was, I was very pleased. Interesting. So we mentioned at the start, um, you're, you're in the early seventies now. I noticed about a year ago, you, uh, you named a couple of co-CEOs and changed your title to executive chairman. Uh, looks like some succession planning going on here. What's your thoughts about um, how to make that go smoothly for Alexandria? Yeah, so uh, let me go back to your the question we were on just one moment ago, and then I'll, I'll come to this one. I think we've always thought if we can do good um, and help people, that's kind of very philanthropic. And if we can help our communities and the ecosystems in which we work, that's ultimately going to be really good business. So that's how we kind of think about it. Um, so I'm still 100% engaged. Uh, this is a huge passion and uh, a, a love of mine. I'm still remain my uh, as the most senior uh, operating officer in the company. Um, what I have been able to do, we've got a very deep bench. People who've been with the company, and I wouldn't call it a bench. It's really you know we're all in the game. Nobody's on the bench actually. Uh, so I've always thought that's kind of an odd expression, but it is used all the time. Um, uh, and you know, our top 15 or 20, uh, execs have been here probably more than 15 years. We almost never lose anybody who's been here a while. Um, and what, uh, I was able to do was to move, uh, a lot of the virtually all of the investor work. So, um, raising capital, uh, interacting with the street and, um, uh, analysts and so forth, two, two of our uh, long-standing, uh, outstanding uh, people uh, as co-CEOs. Um, the street kind of pushed back early on. They don't like co-anything, but in this case, it actually works uh, well, and they both asked to do it. Uh, I didn't impose it upon them, um, and so that's, or nor did the board. Um, and so I'm, I'm freed up to spend my time on uh, people, culture, and growth in our uh, regions. Um, so I put uh, forward to the, we did as a company, but I kind of took on the mantle of the leadership of uh, a framework that we gave to our analysts and investors back at the, um, I think, end of our investor day in 2017. And we said by January of 2018 to December of 2022, we have a framework on what we own today. We can double the rental revenues of this company. So that's been, those are the things that have been my primary focus. So it actually has worked well. So it sounds like you're, you're, you're taking a long view in this new role, but uh, you've delegated some more of the day-to-day -day operating responsibilities to the, these co-executives. Well, Steve and also, and yeah, and I mean, we, we also brought in, uh, 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 several, not brought in, but rate gave promotions to people at the president level, at the chief operating officer level, at the chief investment officer level. We've got a really, really deep um, management team. So it's been very easy. I'm pretty good at delegating. I don't have to, uh, you know, although I'm both 
strategic and I try to be in the weeds because I think if you don't be both, you can't be effective. We call it, we make the deals, but we also make the coffee. None of us are too proud to make coffee. And I think that's like all of us, but uh, we've got a great group of people and we've empowered them to do, you know, amazing things. We don't also ever, we've never had an organization chart. We think that's bad. If you have a hierarchical chart with boxes and things like that, that, that doesn't breed collaborative cross matrix kind of work. When you are ready to uh, phone this in <laughs> uh, or, 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 you know, wave goodbye, when, when do you think that'll, that'll happen for you? I have no current plans, so I haven't thought about that. And people always ask about a uh, legacy. And I always say, you know, I'm on the board of the Navy SEAL Foundation. I always say, I don't think about the past. The only easy day was yesterday. And we just think about the future. And we also don't think our, about our standing. We always want to be scrappy, unbureaucratic, you know, nimble, able to do great things, and also reinventing and reiterating things that we do. So we always want to be at the leading edge and never, you know, I always, if I ever, uh, review somebody or talk to somebody and somebody is kind of got hubris or they're thinking, wow, you've had great success. I always put the book, Jim Collins's book, How the Mighty Fail in front of them and then teach them about how Kodak failed and how a lot of these great companies failed because they felt, oh, we're, we've grown, we're great, we're big, you know, all this stuff, but they didn't uh, reinvent themselves. So that's how we think about things. So you want to stay hungry. Last thing strategically, Joel, um, you know, you look at those moves from the mid 2000s and we can say, wow, that was really smart to bet big on Kendall Square and Mission Bay and in New York City. Uh, but, you know, we have issues now there with uh, rising costs and traffic and, you know, people complain about that, too. Right. So uh, it, where, where do you think the puck is going to go? Uh, do you do you like the idea of some of these second tier hubs other than Boston and San Francisco growing up or or maybe a renaissance in the suburbs? Well, I think we we have over the last number of years really doubled down on the urban cores. We think that uh, there still is great uh, potential. I mean, if you look at Boston and Cambridge, the availability of new modes of transportation, the transportation that's there is getting uh, enhanced. Um, so I think people still want to be in urban cores. They don't want to work remotely. I think the biotech industry is one where you can't just work from a remote location. You have to be there. You have to interact. So we feel that was smart. You know, and the Seattle property is a great example. Um, what interested us about the mega block is, you know, literally on Lake Union in the heart of, you know, Lake Union, We've been there since, uh, you know, we've been there since 1996. Um, the, uh, the traffic is busy, but they've got a new off ramp very close to there. You're going to see enhanced public transportation. You know, the vision of the future is to do, you know, multi, um, multifaceted urban. Uh, so you're doing things with, you know, the knowledge workers, you're doing things with housing, you're doing things with recreation. So it's really an integrating the community. So I'm not one who believes that, you know, this is all going to just go to the suburbs. I think there will be new nodes that emerge, but I think there'll be secondary nodes. Um, I think you'll still see the main uh, biotech hubs remain that for the next generation. Well, from that mega block, I know that you can walk to the Gates Foundation, University of Washington, the Allen Institute, 
the Fred Hutch. Uh, I could go on. Uh, but whoever goes in that building, yeah, yeah, Amazon, Facebook, Google, all of it, all of it. Yeah, and remember, um, Amazon's got this fascinating new uh, consortium with J.P. Morgan and um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway in health and all the big companies. Um, you know, Microsoft's got a big, you know, effort in health. Uh, Apple does. Amazon does. So I think you're going to see a lot of the uh, big tech companies become more more integrated into the whole healthcare realm than uh, we even see today. And maybe there's bad traffic around you, but you can still walk to all those people. <laughs> That's exactly right. And you can live right there too. You don't have to commute. Very interesting stuff. Joel Marcus, thanks very much for joining me today on The Long Run. A great pleasure and congratulations on your great success, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.